deliver the sermon today on Psalm 25. And just a, a few things you may or may not know about Steve. Fascinating man. Committed Christian since 1980. 40 plus years. An elder at IBC for more than 20 years. Serving this body. Steve has worked with drug addicts, Vietnam vets, countless inmates in prison. He's been involved in prison ministries for more than 30 years. And that all comes in a very humble package, but a person who is so devoted to the Word and well-studied. So thank you, Steve, for this morning. Thank you, brother. <clears throat> I did find my watch. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> On that. Good morning, IBC. It's uh, just a real pleasure to be here. The, I've been up at the pulpit here a couple times for relatively short stints. And that's so uh, I'm not totally uncomfortable, but it's in terms of giving a sermon, it's usually it's in a prison or a, a large men's group on that. I know there's certain mental exercises that you can do to not be distracted by the audience. The, uh, being a prison preacher, I'll just picture you all in orange jumpsuits. <laughs> and, I'll be, <laughs> and I'll be fine in that. Psalm 25. It's when we had the opportunity to select the psalm that we were going to speak about, <clears throat> excuse me, the uh, Psalm 25 kept coming back to me. And one of the things I liked about it is, is there were so many ways to look at it. But regardless of how you approach it, from every angle on it, it took you back to the cross. One of the things that was an interesting exercise as I approached this was to look through First and Second Samuel and Chronicles and try to identify uh, where David was at in his life when this was penned. You know, it's a mature prayer. I think that the specific circumstances oftentimes is not defined so that we can make application to our, or of our particular circumstances. And as you think back, the Israel, Israel wanted a king. And so God gave him a king. In spite of uh, recognizing that there's going to be some social and economic difficulties in that process. But <clears throat> under God's direction, Samuel anointed Saul as the king. And as this continued, Saul violated the parameters of his, of his anointing on that, and God rejected Saul. And as it continued, Samuel, under God's direction, anointed the youngest son of Jesse, which after he'd gone through all his sons, David had to be called in from the field who's keeping his flock. And David was anointed, and <clears throat> although he didn't step into the throne at that time, 
Saul was still there. But through a number of situations, David's credibility and fame increased while Saul's decreased. David is forced to flee as Saul's jealousy, pride, and paranoia made him increasingly murderous toward David. It was really about 15 years from the time that he was initially anointed as, as king and where he was declared king over Judah and ultimately over Israel. For the next 15 years, David had many victories. He takes back Jerusalem from the Jebusites, defeats the Philistines, brings back the Ark, <clears throat> conquers the Ammonites. And as the word says, he reigned over all of Israel doing what is just and right for all his people. The words of, or the declaration of a successful king. At this point of great success, David drops his guard. Enters into, a, a, enters into sin of adultery, deception, and ultimately murder. The family dynamics go into disarray. Illicit relationships, murder, separation, betrayal. Absalom, his son, usurps David's authority. Gathers a following in Israel and sees that, a, and David sees that a big storm is coming. And he leaves Jerusalem to save the city. But in the midst of that, <clears throat> there's a lot of palace intrigue, a lot of sides being taken, a lot of, a lot of things that, uh, a lot of betrayal, a lot of shifting of alliances and allegiances. And as David is away from Jerusalem, and Absalom comes in, and the forces politically and physically are being gathered on either side, there's this lull prior to the battle. And as I read through Psalm 25, this is that place. This is that place where I think David is writing this psalm. And in looking at it, there was a lot of different opinions about what that would or could be on that. I was pleased to see that uh, Spurgeon agreed with me in that. So, But this was a dark time. This was a dark time for, for the who God called a man after my own heart. So thank you ladies for reading that. Well done. But it starts out, <clears throat> Psalm of David is the title. It's, it's interesting, I didn't realize it until in my research. <clears throat> the first verse identifies David. It actually reads, To you, O Lord, I, David, lift up my soul. So there's no question about the authorship in that. But that first verse is really, I really like that. To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. You know, we lift up our hands, we lift up our eyes, we lift up our voices. But to you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. I've heard different sermons about the interaction between the soul and the spirit and the heart and the mind and 
the Jewish culture has a more holistic perception of that. And they lift up their soul. This, you know, to going to prayer, to worshiping, is, is, is a way that we transcend the bonds of our earthly existence and can go into the presence of God. Even in the midst of our struggles and difficulties in life, we can, we can transcend those anchors and take the truth, take, take our issue to the only one that can really make a difference. So this is where David starts out. Once again, thinking of the setting, he lifts up his soul to the Lord. Romans 8 says, mindset on the flesh, mindset on the spirit. Mindset on the flesh is death. Mindset on the spirit is, is life and peace. Paul continues to write in Colossians. He says, set your mind on the things above and not on the things of the earth. We can do that by choice. Mindset on the flesh, mindset on the spirit. We don't have to be trapped here. Especially with the focus on what wood could destroy in verse 2, it says, Oh my God, in you I trust. Do not let me be ashamed. Do not let my enemies exult over me. Indeed, none of those who wait on you will be ashamed. And those who deal treacherously without cause will be ashamed. You know, I said earlier that this was a mature prayer. This is, a, this is a mature psalm. It's interesting that a person that up to this point has, has really trusted in the Lord significantly. I mean, prior to this point, well, maybe even just a little bit past that point, but, but nine times, nine times, David specifically prays for direction. Do I go into this battle? Do I do this? Do I go into this battle? And, and nine times, God has answered him. Yes, no. Go, stay. On that. So it's interesting that, that at this particular point, that the statement would be, do not let me be ashamed. You know, the, the ashamed within this context is, is really about, don't let me be seen as someone or that put my faith into something that was unworthy or ineffective. That's the context of ashamed in this, in this particular passage. But David knows that God can be trusted. In you I trust. Don't let me be ashamed. Do not let my enemies exult over me. Indeed, none of those, and here's the statement, indeed, none of those who wait on you will be ashamed, and those who deal treacherously without cause will be ashamed. But David does know. What David does know, and this psalm begins to bear this out, is that in the midst of difficulty, you know, I love all the psalms, but sometimes if they're taken too narrowly, Psalm 1, it looks like if you put your foot in the right place and you do right and you think right, then all will go right. And generally speaking, that is true, but it underplays the complexity 
that are introduced in the difficulties of life. You know, one of the advantages or one of the joys, burdens, as, as being an elder, I have opportunities to pray for the difficulties and the issues in the body here. And oftentimes it's prayed for with tears. And oftentimes what to do and when to do it and how to do it isn't real obvious. But we know, we know that there is a way, God's way, that is the way. I mean, how do we touch this difficult, multifaceted circumstance accurately so that we align with God's way and God's will? And this is, this is what David is saying at this point. He knows that God will teach him. Verse 4, make me know your ways, O Lord. Make me know your ways. Lead me in your truth and teach me. Where, how do I act, react in this circumstance? With all this coming down around my ears. For you are the God of my salvation. I can look back over and I can look to the future and I know, I know that you are there. So how do I align with your way and your will? For you, I will wait. I'll wait all day, as long as it takes. God knows. He knows exactly how to teach us, to correct us, to, to move that knowledge, what we think we know, what is the truth, from our head to our heart. Sometimes we can be pretty stubborn. Remember, O Lord, your compassion and your loving kindness, for they have been of old. This is, this is that, <clears throat> your loving kindness, this is that has said, this is that covenant love. Bringing back to memory Psalm 136. His love endures forever. His has said, his covenant love endures forever. That covenant love that is not subject to what we do or don't do but it's about who he is. Even though when we make mistakes, even though when we're not faithful, even though when we're struggling, it doesn't change who God is. And he knows exactly where, how to touch us and our circumstances that will ultimately conform us to the image of Christ. I mean, that's, that, I find that very, very comforting. That that even in Romans 8.29, from foreknowledge to glorification, he has us. Verse 7 says, Do not remember the sins of my youth or my transgressions. This is the third time. This This is the first of three times that he speaks to his sin, that he speaks to the issue of sin, recognizing that, that if there's going to be, if there is an impedance that's going to allow me to hear, that's going to allow me to see, that's going to allow me to, 
to act in your way and your will, it will be my sin. Do not remember the sins of my youth or my transgressions. So, just kind of interesting is, is as a 70-year-old man, and I know in some arenas I'm a rookie, but as people think back over their youth, are there, are, are there any cringes? The statement is, is, these sins committed with the least restraint at an age when reflection is subordinate to passion. Good definition. It's interesting, this, this particular word even has, uh, this particular description even has a separate word. Uh, pesha. Transgressions. Uh, rebellion is the definition. My wife and I have talked about it several times. I was just like weirdly rebellious. Nobody could tell me what to do with anything, anywhere, anyhow. In fact, if I was told to do something, I would do the opposite. But I showed them. (laughs) I joined the Marines. the fast learner. Verse 8. He says, Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, so how would you finish that sentence? I mean, I think too often the perception of God is a stern father. That if we zag when we're supposed to be zagging, boom. Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, the verse continues, he instructs sinners in the way. Another way to say good and upright may be merciful and just is the Lord. Therefore, he instructs sinners in the way. He does not abandon us when we do, when we act, when we are in ways that that are not in obedience or in alignment with the word. But he does instruct us. He introduces into our life, and I've already said this, that conforms us to the image of Christ. Hebrews 12 talks about that it's, it's, it's the Lord's discipline that is the evidence of our sonship. That's an important concept to even, to even keep in context Because one of the things, if we are continuing in sin and we are not experiencing the Lord's discipline, we may have bigger problems than just our sin. It may not be His. Good and upright is the Lord, therefore He instructs sinners in the way. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. 
He continues with this. He leads the humble in justice. And he leads the humble in his way. I am the way and the truth and the life, Jesus says. It's interesting the reference to humble. He leads the humble in justice and he teaches the humble his way. This continual reference to humbleness. You know, it's um, the opposite of humble is pride. You know, it's, lately that's become a, a national, kind of a national mantra, pride. You know, it was, it was Satan's original sin, I will be like the most high. But we have a significant segment of our society. That the word is pride. And they're, they're, that idea, that concept is taking us down the line toward the fruition of Romans chapter 1. But humility, humility is that, is, that, is that character of heart. I like this definition. Humility is that character of heart, that character of mind that makes everything simple. It's a good statement. When, when I find myself in struggling with, with instruction or feedback or whatever the case may be, I recognize that it's scratching my pride. Verse 10, all the paths of the Lord are loving kindness and truth to those who keep his covenant and his testimonies. John chapter 7. I love this statement. If anyone chooses to do God's will, this is Jesus speaking, he will find out whether my teaching comes from God or whether I speak on my own. If anyone chooses to do my will, do God's will, he will know whether in speaking the truth, or is he speaking on his own? John 8, 31, 32 says, If you're my disciples, if you abide in me, then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. You know, I, I love, I'm not a real quick study, and some of these things here where it's real simple and it's real lineal, that really works for me. But the process is, is if we obey the word, then we'll understand the truth, and the truth will set you free. Obedience unto growing in the truth and the resultant freedom. I can get that. But the difficulty, the danger, is the opposite is also true. If we enter into disobedience, we can be trapped into the lie, resulting in bondage. You know, sometimes we think we get away with stuff. We don't get away with nothing. Psychologically, emotionally, even if not socially, publicly. When we walk against the will of God, when we consciously, intentionally 
disobey the way of God, there's a cost. From disobedience to the lie, the bondage. He leads the humble in justice, and he teaches the humble his way. Peter Forsyth, one of those ancient Scottish pastors, he said, the first duty of every soul is to find not its freedom, but its master. This is a good statement. The first duty of every soul is to not find its freedom, but its master. And the word says, in verse 10, all the paths of the Lord are loving kindness. All the paths of the Lord are loving kindness and truth to those who keep his covenant and his testimonies. For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my iniquity. For it is great. This is the second time he dresses his sinners' transgressions. For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my iniquity, for it is great. Several years ago, I, I heard a, a pastor, it might, might have been D.A. Carson that was here, <clears throat> but he, the, the Latin in iniquity has the same root as inequity. In equus, equus equal, in un. Uh, so iniquity, unequity. This is also a different word. Uh, some of your versions will say guilt. Pardon my guilt. With that, but this is a different word than what was there when he talked about the transgressions of the rebellion of his youth. And this idea of, of inequity. <clears throat> you know, one of the things as I've gotten older, I realize that there is a way. There is a way to speak into, to touch, to interact with every circumstance with every circumstance, with every person that constitutes accuracy. Accuracy being defined by aligning with the will of God. I'm not very good at it. But, but, it, but it's just, it's an aha just to know that that's there. There's a thing, there's a way, there's a place, there's a word when you speak to your children, when you speak to your spouse, when you speak to your grandpa. You know, that is accurate, that encourages, that instructs, that loves, without alienating. That's just, that's just interesting. And I, and I think David here is saying, I've been really inaccurate in my relationship with people in terms of what you would have me do and be and say. Pardon my iniquity, for it is great, is what he says. You know, for those of us that, that at the end of the day, we, we, we think over in our head and our hearts what we did and didn't do that day. You know, this... this and, and what's I say? Those cringes. 
You know, but we can grow with that. And if we consciously, intentionally think about, you know, the, the old, what would Jesus do? It's kind of heading that direction. But it's just, it's, for me, it's, it's a, to know that there is a way to touch this accurately that aligns with the will of God. It's a different mental uh, pursuit. Who is the man who fears the Lord? Verse 12. He will instruct him in the way and that he should choose. His soul will abide in prosperity and his descendants will inherit the land. The secret of the Lord is for those who fear him and he will make them know his covenant. When you ask somebody, what is the fear of the Lord? What is the fear of the Lord? We get awe, uh, respect. I think too often that that is too understated. You know, when you see a theophany in the Bible, or Christophany, where, where visions of Christ or visions of God come into to play with, with, the, uh, with the Bible, with Bible people on that, the first thing they do is hit the ground. They are on their face. You know, I think it goes beyond awe. It goes beyond respect. You know, those that have been involved with uh, maybe natural phenomena, oftentimes, it uh, start to have maybe a, an understanding of that. Many years ago, I was in the mountains, and... <clears throat> It was on Mount Townsend. And I was on the top of the mountain there, and the clouds were off to the side, and the sun was back on this side, and in front of me was a mist that was happening. And my, my shadow was projected onto those clouds, and then that mist caused a rainbow over my, over my, uh, over my imposed shadow on the clouds. There's a, there's a name for that. I forget what they, well, I'm not knowing what they call it, but there's a, there's a name for that. But my heart exploded. You know, but it was interesting. My, my, my first response was to start to develop a, a naturalistic, atmospheric explanation for what was happening. And I, and I, and I park it there. To this day, to this day, I regret not falling on my face and worshiping. But the fear of the Lord, oh, that we would fear the Lord. Verse 15. My eyes are continually toward the Lord. For he will pluck my feet out of the net. Anybody had any feet plucked out of the net lately? Weekly? Daily? You know, I think maybe God's greatest gift, maybe God's greatest gift in our lives is that he does not allow 
our sinful propensities to meet up with opportunity. Turn to me and be gracious to me, for I am lonely and afflicted. David says, The troubles of my heart are enlarged. Bring me out of my distresses. Look upon my affliction and trouble and forgive my sins. Once again, for the third time, he says, Forgive my sins. You know, some of these things, he goes on to say, Look upon my enemies. For they are many, and they hate me with a violent hatred. This is his own children. Guard my soul and deliver me. Do not let me be ashamed, for I take refuge. Forgive all my sins. I think some of these things, even as he gives this list of of social, psychological, emotional maladies that are there, I think he recognizes, as he thinks back of his relationship with Bathsheba and what stemmed out of that, is that this is my fault. You know, I just, it's, he says, forgive my youthful rebellion. Forgive my inequities and the way I've dealt with people. Forgive my sins that have affected my family. Bible tells us the sins of the father have an effect for generations. But that passage goes on to say, but to those who love me, he does indeed forgive us. You know, one of the things that as we look at this passage, I am lonely and afflicted. The troubles of my heart are enlarged. Bring me out of my distresses. Look upon my affliction. Look upon my enemies. They hate me with a violent hatred. You know, I like looking for and, and, and having a sense of, of where David was at when he wrote this. But I, but I also like the interpretation of others that said, this is a psalm about life. These are the things that uh, in a group like this, that many, many of the people sitting here today are going through a number of these issues. Maybe two degrees, but those things are there. I'm lonely. I'm afflicted. The troubles of my heart are enlarged. My distresses, my troubles. I have enemies, and they hate me. There's times, there's places, there's ways where this applies to each and every one of us. This do not let me be ashamed, for I take refuge in you. We can apply these to our lives. And then in 21, he says, let integrity and uprightness preserve me. These are the bumpers. You know, I was like going bowling and that ball goes down there, and it really works for me when they got these bumpers that come inside, keep me out of the gutters. The, uh, but that's integrity and uprightness. They preserve me. As I, as, I, as I navigate these difficulties, 
that may indeed be of some of them of my own causing. You know, but I recognize that, that you, O oh Lord, you have me. You've made covenant promises about who I am and, and what my future is. You've demonstrated your love and your care in the past, and that's not negated. But as I move into this, I want to be accurate. Turn to me and be gracious to me. It's interesting, he says, verse 15, he says, my eyes are continually toward the Lord, for you'll pluck me out of my feet, out, out, of my, out of the net. And then he says, turn to me. My eyes are on you, turn to me. That integrity and uprightness preserve me. And then even in the midst of that, even in the midst of that, and this is one of the, a caution that is kind of tacked on there. Even in the midst of the difficulties, that takes up a lot of focus. He says, redeem Israel, O God, out of his troubles. Even as this may be representative of some here today, not today, tomorrow, for us. It's important that we look out. Hebrews 3.13 says, Let us encourage one another daily, as long as it's called today, so that sin is not hardened in your heart. There's a reason that Christ called us together as a church, to live life together, to share together, to encourage one another, to teach one another, to love one another. What I don't want you to think is that because you struggled this week, because maybe some of these things that you've seen in this passage are applicable to you, that that now I can't do communion, I can't be a Christian. You know, one of the good books that I like is uh, an old book, Christian Secret of a Happy Life. Kind of a hokey title, but it talks about a child that puts his hand on a burner on that, and the mother comes up and swats the child, stand in the corner. <clears throat> and the child stands in the corner in 15 minutes or whatever it is, steps back out and says, I'm going to leave. He says, what? I can't be your child. I'm, I'm not worthy. You know, we would think a child had problems because that's, that's, that's not the case. You made a mistake. You did something wrong. You were, it was addressed and, and now you enter back into full fellowship with the family. You know, the cross is sufficient. Jesus Christ took our sins for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. You know, even as we see in the life of David, yes, there was sin, but God used that sin. He used that sin to teach, to to help us to understand the difference between light and darkness and and righteousness and, and evil. You 
If we confess, the word tells us if we confess, he's faithful and just to forgive and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And if you're here today and and you don't know Christ, if you've not accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you know the gospel. For God so loved the world that he gave. Christ, the sinless Son of God, went to the cross and bore our sins upon his shoulders. And rose on the third day as proof that it was indeed sufficient. If, if you live a life that says, what I want to do, I don't do. What I don't want to do, I do. Who can save me from this body of sin and death? It is not you. The statement is, there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And accepting that, you enter into the fellowship of the family. Well, I don't know if I have enough faith as a mustard seed. I mean, Hebrews tells us that that God is the author and perfecter of our faith. So the faith that you have is the faith that God has given you. And that is sufficient. It's not how much money you got. It's not how smart you are. It's not how much hair you got. It's divine genius. By faith. By faith. By faith. 